everyone. Thanks for tuning in to episode four of the Good Lord Bird Companion Podcast, where we discuss the limited Showtime series, Good Lord Bird, starring Ethan Hawke, adapted from a novel by the same name, written by James McBride. I'm Andy White. My co-host, Trevor Mowry, was regrettably unable to join us today, but don't fear. He's the jerky to my hardtack, the bayonet to my rifle, and the little onion in my pocket, and he'll be back with us next time. This episode is a truly special one, as we are hosting an interview with the caliber of guest we could have only dreamed of. Christy S. Coleman is a titan of her field, having overseen some of the nation's most prominent museums, which we'll discuss shortly. She was also part of bringing Good Lord Bird from the page to the screen in a historically immersive way as a historical consultant. Christy was gracious enough to join me by phone on Friday, June 19th. Juneteenth. All right. Today we have a very, very special guest that we're absolutely thrilled to have. <laughs> I feel like this is a moment in um, in Wayne's world where Wayne and Garth meet Alice Cooper and they fall to their knees, uh, exclaiming, <laughs> "We're not worthy." This is <laughs> this is truly an experience like that <laughs> for us. Today we're joined by Christy S. Coleman, who is a renowned figure in the historical and museum world. Christy has been all over the museum world. And I'm just going to read through, I'm going to keep it really brief because we could talk about it for so long. You just have such like an impressive history with this stuff. You were born in Williamsburg, got your museum studies degree at Hampton, worked at the Baltimore City Life Museum, the director of public history for Colonial Williamsburg Foundation, the president CEO of the Charles H. Wright Museum of African American History in Detroit, former CEO of the American Civil War Museum. You just wrapped up your 12-year, I believe, mm-hmm, tenure there. Mm-hmm. Um, and during that time, oversaw the merger of the American Civil War Center and the Museum of the Confederacy, co-chaired the Confederate Statues Commission, which studied uh, a lot about what to do with Confederate monuments, present enrichment, and, and where those went, which are the kind of conversations that I think are <laughs> so incredibly relevant to, to what's going on in our current moment of American history. And, and you're currently the director at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, which, if correct me if I'm wrong, runs the Jamestown Settlement Museum and American Revolution Museum. Is that right? That's correct. Wonderful. I mean, if there's <laughs> if there is anybody I feel like I would like to talk to Civil War history about, it would be you. So thank you so much for joining us here today, especially on this incredibly poignant day, uh, Juneteenth. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And so thank you for being with us. Well, thank you, Andy. I appreciate it. Well, I I think we can really kind of get started um, to let you know, you know, this podcast that that Trevor and I started really came about because we're two Kansas natives living in Lawrence, Kansas, which was the stronghold of the Free State Movement, kind of the one of the epicenters for bleeding Kansas activity. And so that's always kind of been part of our history and even uh, lore, I guess you would call it, growing up. And so when we heard about Showtime producing this series based on James McBride's book, The Good Lord Bird, we became extremely excited um, to see some of this stuff play out on TV that we had read so much about. Um, so can you tell me a little bit about how you came to, from the museum world to do work on the show and what that was like bringing something like this to life? Sure, sure. So for this particular project, I, I got a call from one of the producers, um, who I had worked with on the Harriet film. And, you know, over the years, I've um, been a historical consultant for a number of films or, um, have been in various documentaries with Henry Louis Gates. Most recently, I was one of the scholars during the Grant production um, 
that Leonardo DiCaprio did. And so anyway, the one of the producers for Harriet, because I had worked on that film, reached out to me and said, hey, you know, we've been working with McBride on the script. You know, there's some other historians that we've, we've reached out to, but I really think um, we could use your expertise here to help us out. Are you interested? And I said, sure, you know, send me the the, the show Bible and let me know what, what you're thinking about and mm-hmm. so forth. So they sent the script over and, and I agreed to do it. And so I was uh, sort of in a retainer agreement with the production throughout. So they sent the material, asked me for my feedback on, you know, not only the, the show format and, the, and the, the Bible as it were, but the first two episode scripts. And I went through them, you know, gave a few, a few notes. I mean, one of the things I I will say that I think makes me a little unique among the historic, you know, the public historian realm is that, you know, I actually came into museums from theater and production work. So I've, I've been a, I've been a script writer. I've been, you know, and I've had uh, my scripts um, have won daytime Emmys for education and, so I have this oh, wow. unique mix um, in there. So, so I go through the script, and and for all intent and purposes, it was really good. You know, fairly faithful to the book, some of the mm-hmm. humor in the book, some of the passion of the book. Mm-hmm. And so, again, I agreed to do it, and that was the start of the experience. I mean, I will say it was very different than what I did for Harriet. I mean, I did do script reviews for Harriet as well, um, but they, you know, in that particular case, the Casey Lemons, the scriptwriter, had had done the director and, and scriptwriter. She had done a lot of work on the script already. She had been working with another amazing scholar, Kate Larson. And so, in that particular role, I was doing more on set stuff. I mean, I did review the scripts, you know, made some suggestions, but then went on site to look at sort of costuming and how they had set up the slave quarters in the house and, oh, and wow. you know, made suggestions there and had to actually teach the actors how to, how to do the work in the field because some of them had never lifted a, oh, wow. a yard tool in their lives. So oh, that was a right. very different experience sure. than with Good Lord Bird. And so as they were beginning production, the producer reached out to me, um, Shay reached out to me and said, hey, listen, Ethan wants to sit down with you and the key members of the cast and, and have a conversation. Oh, very cool. I was like, sure. And so what they had planned, they they, they actually wanted to go out in the woods and camp because this is something that they, <sighs> they have to do in the, but of course this is, you know, they've got production assistants setting up the tents and the, you know, sure. all kinds sure. of going on in the park. <laughs> A little different. So I go out, yeah, I go out in the middle of nowhere, you know, and um, to meet him and the principal uh, in, the, in, the, in the series. And we just sit around. And we talk history. Um, they had lots of amazing questions. It was clear even had done his homework. I mean, he'd been really reading a lot about Brown, trying to figure out how best to portray him. You know, mm-hmm. so you know there were lots of questions about. Well, you know, it's clear he's passionate about this. He really believes that the, that God's hand is on him because he keeps escaping all of these potential injuries and death. And sure, you know, and he just feels like he is, you know, in this righteous moment and. And he said, so, you know, what else can you tell me about what's going on? You know, frame, you know, frame what he's doing for me. So, of course, we talk about being Kansas. We talk about the free, you know, the free state movements and how the South was trying to usurp that process by paying, you know, the wealthy um, Southern planners were paying 
uh, young white 21 year old men and sending them into Kansas and other Western territories that were applying for statehood. And that, you know, um, and of course the, the um, 18, you know, the, the compromise of 1850 and the Fugitive Slave Act. And so I'm going through all right. of this stuff and they, and, and the cast was really asking extraordinary, extraordinary questions. And awesome. so we were out there, what was supposed to be 90 minutes ended up being probably close to three and a half hours of just sitting <laughs> in the woods, just wow. talking and just going back and forth, talking, talking, talking. And then um, actually a couple of the cast members came to the museum when they get when they weren't shooting and wanted to come to the museum and kind of see you know what we were doing and and that was cool to to you know literally bump into them because they didn't they didn't call me you know and I given all oh, of them you know my numbers like look at me sure. running into some problems feel free to give me a call as long as that's cool with the you know the producer or the director um and you know and then I said I, you know I said to Ethan I said I would love to come out to set just to, you know, see what you all are doing. I said, I'm particularly interested in the Douglas episode and how that's done because Devine Diggs plays Frederick Douglass. And as it turned out, (laughs) the director of that episode was like, nope, I'm trying to keep the set closed. I'm just, you know, not going to do it. I was like, dang it. (laughs) And I didn't want to press the issue, you know, by saying, well, Ethan said I can come anytime I want to. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. You know, that's that's interesting that you bring up that that particular episode because this is one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about um, mm-hmm. in working on a project like this that's that's different than Grant or different than Harriet where I think probably or especially what you do in, in the museum world, which is using the the forensic pieces of history that you have and, and interpreting mm-hmm. that from, from this mm-hmm. actual history. And in this realm, you know, you're working with this historical fiction, this uh, amazing story mm-hmm. written by James McBride, mm-hmm. but it has a sometimes controversial takes on, on, um, or embellishments or perhaps diversions from history. Right. Especially with, I, I think, when I when I read the book and I read Frederick Douglass in the book and I read what people had to say about it, I think that's it's a little controversial. So what does that what does that feel like when you are when you're a historian dealing with that stuff? How do you kind of merge those worlds of I want to tell the story right, I want people to be immersed in history, but there's also this element of sort of fantasy that's built in. Mm-hmm. Can you talk well, about maybe I mean, what that's like to balance sure, that? Sure, sure. So I mean, first of all, you have to you know if you if you're going to do any kind of historical work for, for for film or television you, if that becomes part of your mix you have to acknowledge that there is always going to be some compromise with the forensic history and and in for me as long as that compromise either moves the story forward that its intrinsic truth stays true mm-hmm. um you can deal with that i mean we we had quite a bit of that with the harriet piece right Okay. Where, you know, they're, because of time compression, they rearranged some things that, you know, historically we knew, no, that happened to her in, you know, 1847, not, you know, 1858. Or, sure. you know, um, but it moved the story, uh, the story arc along in a way that was important right. with the essence of the character. And so when you're dealing with a work of historic fiction, though, it's, it's the same thing. You, you acknowledge right off the bat, we, we're dealing with fiction here. Mm-hmm. And so the characters 
Um, there may be, uh, again, compression of characters. I mean, the whole Onion character, obviously, is a complete fabrication, but he is the device that helps move this story along and allows us to see John Brown and these variety of things and to get into John Brown's head and, and what have you, which, you know, some of that historic evidence is missing. You know, we know a lot about what Brown said and did, but sure. there, you know, some of these more intimate moments, you know, that are absolutely fabrications, you just have to try your best to keep them, you know, again, as, as accurate as you can to the period and the way that we perceive, you know, the character. And the thing about Brown that's so fascinating to me is that he, there were a lot of ways that people perceived him. I mean, some people perceived him as just a raving lunatic, right? Right. I mean, he was a crazy man who's out of control, you know, and then others saw him as almost a prophet, right? As, as mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the biblical Michael who was coming down to smite, you know, all of these sinners on God's behalf, right? Sure. So you've got, you know, you've got this mix. And I, I think it's interesting. And I have not seen the final product. I, let me say that. Uh, I'll mm-hmm. be watching right along with everybody else. Um, <laughs> You know, but I was, I, I felt greater comfort in the conversations with Ethan Hawke about how he was wanting to approach him. And, you know, he wanted to have a sense of wonder about him and a certain level of naivete, but at the same time, a fierceness about him, a person who had no issue killing because he felt he had a righteous calling. Um, right. And so, you know, I do know that some of the scenes are really quite brutal. Right. Um, and, you know, and we talked about that. And so he, he, I think when people see this work, they'll see all of that. You know, they'll see the humanity of this person who, again, is just driven by something most of us never have to experience in our lives. So mm-hmm. from, a, from a consultant, historical consultant point of view, you know, my goal is, is it true to the period? Is it true to these characters? you know, recognizing that you have to give some license to help, again, this idea of of the story arc and keeping the story moving and interesting. And so there may be moments that are, that that in in the actual historical record may not have played out quite that way, but they need to, you know, they need to make a a, a larger point. You know, I was struck by the trailer, for example, um, that came out and, (laughs) and, you know, Brown is all excited. And I think it's actually a scene from, from episode four and you know brown is so excited to to hear frederick douglas speak and he's in the crowd and he's trying to get douglas's attention and douglas is trying to you know stay on point and you know and douglas right. was someone who was keenly aware of his image keenly aware of his power as a speaker a brilliant mind mm-hmm. in and of himself and so there's that this really peculiar moment where brown's like a fan like a fanboy hey Douglas, you know Douglas, 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 <laughs> right and Douglas sure. is like, you know, trying to shoo him away and like, dude, that dude is crazy, you know, right. um, kind of moment, which is this sort of humor moment that, you know, is more dramatic versus, you know, likely, I don't think Brown would have done anything like that from the stage, you know, sure. I just don't, but it's okay, sure. right? So, you know, again, it's a, it's a work of dramatic fiction based on a historical thing, and so you you know if you have to really be be I think you have to be mindful of that when you're working with the team, and as I tell people even in a even in a, a you know something that is considered more bio, um, more of a biographical piece, at the end of the day, 
the director and the producer and the writer, they can pay you all they want and they don't have to listen to you. (laughs) (laughs) But at the end of the day, they don't have to listen to the, to the scholars. Right. You know, and and that, you know, that's, that's kind of just the nature of the beast. I find that so fascinating that, that, you know, they, it, it seems like from what I've from what I've read from the press that uh, that Ethan has been doing that he mm-hmm. was really captivated by the story and 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 McBride's telling of John Brown and mm-hmm. and you can tell I mean even in those interviews it seems like he really wanted to kind of do that justice and I think it's so mm-hmm. cool that they have you know they they have the foresight to say like we need to have somebody here to make sure that we're kind of doing this right um, mm-hmm. to make sure that we're doing this justice can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about like whether it was in that meeting or maybe some consulting that you did with like the screenplay like what that looks like what kind of things made jump out to you and you say hold on a minute i have maybe an issue with this or maybe presenting ideas that are different what is what does that look like okay and i um i have gone here and pulled out the the script Right, so I'm awesome. going through here and looking at you know some of the notes that I may have in here. Okay, so there were in one of these earlier drafts there were some language choices that were inappropriate. Okay, you know the, the sort of the not so much the cadence but but sort of the phraseology. You know, was too contemporary compared to the period. So you know that's a little thing, but it it can be jarring if you're watching a historical piece and then all of a sudden you know somebody goes you know says something like dude. Right. I mean, right. come on. Right. Right. That, that sure. doesn't, you know, doesn't work. I'm not saying that happened, in, in that, but that's an example of, <laughs> sure. of right. things that can be off a bit. Um, sometimes it's the setting itself where they're talking about, you know, they're, they're inside a tavern, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, they're drinking this or eating that. And you go, nope, that's not what's going to be available to them. Gotcha. Okay. Gotcha. You know, and, and it's, it's little things like that that you, you know, the general audience may or may not be as concerned about, um, but it does happen. Perfect. You know, here's a here's an example from a colleague of mine who did years ago was a consultant for the movie Glory, for example. Mm-hmm. And so they had a they had a, a scene, a plantation scene, where the people were sitting. You know, these slaveholders are sitting on their veranda, and they're drinking iced tea. Now, this is July <laughs> in Mississippi. Right. And so the person who did the historical can work on that, he said, we were talking about, about it, and he said, he said, yeah, I'll never forget, you know, I'm, I'm on set and I'm watching them bring out this iced tea, and I'd already told them, you know, no iced tea in Mississippi. People are drinking tea, sure, but they're not right. drinking iced tea. And so he said, okay, so where are you going to get the ice from? So he had to literally like take them through why this was stupid. But he, again, right. he got on set and they still were doing it. And again, he brought it up. He said, think about what's happening, where we are, what you are feeling in the air right now. Where's ice coming from? And, and so, you know, they, they, in that particular instance, they decided to listen to him. But there were other instances where that, that did not happen. And again, you know, there's, it's just like I said. It's just the nature of this particular. Sure. Sure. It just depends on the the. Again, in this particular case, I think because Ethan Hawke had dedicated so much time and energy into not only portraying Brown but getting it made. I mean, you know, he's an executive producer on this film. 
Right. Um, you know, he's the main driver, so he wanted it right, right? He absolutely wanted it right and pulled together a team to make sure that they were as close as possible. And, and like I said, in those early scripts, those early drafts, I was pleased to say that, that you know, for the most part, they did a really extraordinary job. And granted, they, they had a guide, right? They had McBride's book and McBride put in the work too. Right. right? Yeah. So, so, you know, many of the words really just lift off the pages of the book. So it wasn't nearly as difficult. Sure. That, that actually kind of transitions into something that I was, I was curious about, you know, seeing the trailer was really fun. Uh, it was, Mm -hmm. I think the tone of it was unexpected. You know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect really from what this was going to be like. And I feel like the energy and the filmmaking side of things, which Trevor is really the expert on just, I really jumped off the screen to us and I think excited us and in a lot of ways. And I could, I could see even through like, sort of like that monologue that he delivered that John Brown delivers in that trailer. It -hmm. seems like the, um, the verbiage matched pretty closely to what was mm-hmm. actually written in the book. And so, mm-hmm. you know, I, I was really interested in what a, what the book looks like versus a screenplay and how much of that is, um, happens on set, you know, being able mm-hmm. to actually, you know, spit out the lines or whether mm-hmm. it's, if they're making historical choices, maybe along the way, like, well, you know, this is in the book, but maybe this works a little bit better. Are, are those sort of things oh, that sure. happen as well? Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because see, the beauty of a book is you, you have, pages to describe an environment right. where where the where the writer has to create the image in your head when you're doing the script sometimes the image play can play so quickly and convey more than the words do right even the words that are spoken by a character and so i think that that's why you know honestly that's why screen at the, you know screen adaptations or its own category, because it's a really tough thing to do to pull a great book and then convert it to a script. It's not just a matter of lifting all the dialogue out of a book and putting it on the page as a screenwriter. You've got to be able to, to take those visual passages and messages and, and make them their own. And the other thing about a book is if you did try to do a book verbatim, you know, or get close to verbatim, you're talking in most cases probably a four or five hour film. I mean, mm-hmm. just think about how long it takes us to read something, even sure. if you took out the descriptions of places and spaces and physical descriptions of people and you, you eliminated that, you're still talking about a pretty long film if you're trying to do a straight adaptation. Totally. So, yeah, no, I mean, they, they have to make those choices about, again, in, in, in this case, it's, it's compression. But here's, the, you know, the thing, again, about Good Lord Bird is because it's being presented as a series. A limited series instead of trying to cram all of this in a two or two and a half hour movie, he has time to let the elements of the book play out in the script. Right. And I think they do a pretty good job of that. You know, they kind of wrap things thematically as, as you move through the series. But, you know, the compression issues are still there. And I think that that's pretty good. And I'll, you know, I'll be honest, I, I spent more time with the scripts than I did, you know, on the book because that's what they asked me to do. You sure. Know, um, well, you know, it was, the, it was the, the writer's job to figure out how they wanted to compress and what they wanted to do. You know, my job and it was, are they, are they being true to the period of 18, you know, from 18, basically 1855 up until 1859? Are they holding all these pieces together in place? And 
and they were. I mean, I, I think I think they've done again on paper. I think they've done a really good job. Now, admittedly, it's going to be curious to me to to actually see the visuals. You right. Know? Um, right. I, I will say, you know, so there's a group of, of historians and and people who like us who get together on Sunday evenings. Uh, Jason Herbert uh, is a is a scholar who um, started this thing called Historians at the Movies. And every Sunday night, uh, they watch a movie on Netflix and they tweet about it. And it's really pretty funny stuff. Oh, awesome. Right? I don't know and anything so, about this. I'll definitely yeah, it's called Historians at the Movies. And, you know, all different kinds of films, different genres, different periods. And so a lot of fun. And, you know, and, and frankly, I, I, I learn a lot about that. And, and for those of us who, who participate from time to time, it's, it's really quite something to have this sort of range of expertise that comes in and kind of fills in the gaps of where things went wrong. So, for example, even with Grant, the documentary Grant, as wonderful as it was, I mean, it is fantastic. Mm. Some of the it, when the first battle scenes that come up, those of us who are in the Civil War world were like, oh, no, right? <laughs> sure. Because, sure. you know, they get certainly get the brutality of the war right, but the costuming isn't completely right. And the flags right. are all wrong for the Confederacy uh, for that, you know, those particular battles. You know, they went with this sort of generic 1864 Army of Tennessee flag to be sort of this representative, which, you know, in popular culture mm-hmm. became sort of the Confederate flag. But it wasn't the correct battle flags for the units that were involved. I see. You know, and so we're looking at it and going, oh, that particular costume it looks like polyester. Good God, why is that on there? <laughs> you know, and it's like, oh my God, right. the flag is all wrong. What did they do? You know, so so sure. <laughs> so that's sure. the kind of kind of thing you go, oh man, like everything else was brilliant, yeah. right? You right. know, and right. and again, the general public probably isn't going to know that, but sure. for those of us who really do know that, it was like, oh, see, no man. Um, <laughs> Why didn't they listen to me? Why didn't they listen on that? <laughs> or did or who was with them, right? So that's the other thing. Right. Like who was with them, you know, uh, choreographing the battle scene? I don't gotcha. know. I don't know. Gotcha. Who, I don't know who did that. Um, I know that a lot of those scenes, from what I understand, were filmed overseas. So oh, it may have just been somebody who was. I don't know. I, I, I honestly don't know. But back to General sure. Bird. Uh, as far as I know, they did not have anybody on set and i and as i understand it from shay the producer shay kramer you know when i asked him about it he said well ethan really wants to give these directors there's only two directors and he said he really wanted to give them Mm -hmm. the latitude to tell the stories in the script and so you know you'll see certain things likely that that he said but i you know and he goes but i learned a lot from you (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> the Harriet thing. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, true. okay. The shout out. I yeah. was like, all right. So, you know, it was really cool. It was very cool. That's great. That's great. Well, mm-hmm. I, I want to circle back to we. You mentioned Onion a little bit earlier. You mentioned the the controversial nature of John Brown and how he's portrayed in history. So, I want to. I, I have a few questions about that. Sure. The character Onion, uh, a fictional mm-hmm. character that, like you said, drives a story. Onion's the narrator. When you read, I'm I'm curious mm-hmm. to know. Maybe you have some insight into this. It, it, will Onion be narrating during 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 the series? Is that is it a combination? You see of Onion. Of, it's a combination. You okay, see Onion. Gotcha. Right. Which is kind of, you know, because when Brown first sees him, you know, he's a boy dressed up as a girl trying to get away, right? He's trying to run right. away. But you see Onion, and, and the young actor who portrays him, I thought was really a smart, you know, 
smart, smart kid. Um, really talented That's young man. Awesome. And so, yeah, but you see Onion in the script. You know, you see him interacting, and then you do have the voiceovers with him. Okay. And I would imagine that Onion has to be right up there with one of the most difficult characters to sort of bring to life because of the complicated nature of of who Onion is, uh, mm-hmm. you know, who is a boy mistaken for a girl that's, mm-hmm. that uh, kind of continues that presentation mm-hmm. and throughout the book for his own good. I mean, really, it's, mm-hmm. it's Onion sort of navigates this world as a character that's that has that really navigates a lot of interesting things about the the way that he presents himself mm-hmm. whether it's his gender identity or his race and mm-hmm. i think that that gets that could be really tricky to do right and tricky mm-hmm. to portray mm-hmm. so mm-hmm. i think i i can't wait to see that i'm i'm so glad to hear you say that you you love the performance because i mean it's such a I, well i said i love the actor right remember, oh you, you haven't seen the performance it. right yeah i you haven't, haven't seen, seen the yet. performance <laughs> I, I just loved where his head was about sure. playing Onion. Sure. And, you know, some of the things that he was thinking about, you know, in, in that early period. So I have a feeling that the way that he, I think what I'm thinking is that the way he will portray Onion is is someone who, who clearly understands that he has to be fluid. Mm-hmm. Right. He has to have mm-hmm. sort of this, this gender fluid for his own protection, depending on what environment he's in. Right. 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 And so, and, and what will afford him what protection at what time? And I think right. that this young man understood that dynamic. Wonderful. Wonderful. That's, uh, I, I mean, I can't wait to see that because it's just, mm-hmm. it's, Onion is such a great character to read. And mm-hmm. also while navigating extremely dangerous and like fraught situations, like super funny. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like yeah, the, yeah, yeah. you know, you find yourself throughout the book just like kind of chuckling along sort of constantly at like this retelling of this tale. Mm-hmm. So I'm I'm excited about that. I, I also have a question about you. You touched on this earlier with the the controversial nature of a character like John Brown, and well, some see as a saint, some see as more complicated than that, and some see uh, as there are probably a lot of people that feel negatively about mm-hmm. a character like John Brown. And history is, it seems like from what I've read, history is a little divided. I mean, you can read some accounts that, you know, some some authors and some takes are, this is a very intentional man doing, mm-hmm. that is willing to take very intentional steps to see mm-hmm. his goal through. And then there are, I think, other perspectives that definitely try to paint him more in just like a lunatic light. Can you talk mm-hmm. about a little bit of what this moment in history sort of ties to John Brown, ties to characters like John Brown that are maybe willing to do drastic things to see some sort of to try to move the needle of progress a little bit and mm-hmm. and sort of where we're at in that historical moment well i mean you got to remember when all of this is happening all right let's let's start with bleeding kansas and he is you know this is when he really sort of gets a national name people begin to understand wait a minute you're the dude who is basically guerrilla fighting right 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 and and taking people out who were impeding a constitutional crisis to you, right? And so, so in those regards, he's very intentional, but in those, the, the decision is intentional. The behavior mm. becomes more instinctual, I guess is, is what I want to say, where he has no regret. You know, my, my take on him is that he really has no regret for any of it. I mean, he feels right. absolutely righteous in everything that he is doing. Right. And so 
So there is this mix. There is this mix of this man who makes very intentional moves. I mean, you, you got to remember, he's trying to rally other abolitionists, most of whom are far more moderate on these issues. You know, who right. are like, no, we're not going to, you know, going to go to war over this. We'll just continue doing what we're doing, and we will aid and abet. But we are not going to risk life and limb. We're not ready for a, a holy war or a slave, you know, war over this. So he's he's really alone. He's on the edge of that. It's just him and his family for the most part, and a few others that, that will eventually join him as he was becoming sort of successful in this. Mm-hmm. Um, and there are people who are afraid of him, even within the same movement, because they don't know what harm his violent his violence would bring. You know, it's the same sure. conversation today. I mean, can we, you know, people want to fixate on on the rioting or the looting or the the perceived violence, but are more outraged by that than the injustice that brings that about. Right, okay? exactly. Right. And so for Brown, it is not an ambiguous thing. They are all connected pieces of the same puzzle to him. In right. And so right. that's why even in his own lifetime, he's viewed in all of those ways. For those allies of his that were like, I can't do it, but man, do your thing. This is great. Right. So there's that group. There are those like, oh, he's going to destroy the movement and things are going to get worse. And then, of course, there's Southerners who just think he's an out and out raving lunatic, no matter. He's holding the Bible and quoting the Bible about this vengeance, you know, saying who who want him caught and want him executed even before Harper's Ferry. Mm -hmm. And so the, the conflict with John Brown um, was very real. And, and frankly, John Brown may, in fact, not may, I mean, he is a major influence in, in why we end up going to war on top of Lincoln being elected in 1850. So in 1859, when, when Brown is executed, the fact that they, uh, Northern abolitionists, you know, you get the printing of John Brown's body, you know, the poem. Mm-hmm. And then that widely spreads and is disseminated. And then people start seeing he becomes a martyr for the movement. Right, right. And that is a powerful thing. He becomes a martyr for the movement. And even a decade before, no one could have imagined something like that. So I think John Brown will always be a conflicted character the same way Nat Turner is a conflicted character. You know, there are people that consider Nat Turner an absolute hero, somebody who was willing to fight and die and kill for the freedom of his people, Um, you know, and, but there are people who are, you know, well, he did it by murdering innocent people. Well, I mean, to him, nobody was innocent. Right. You were either for slavery or you were against it. And if you were for it, whether you own slaves or not, you were complicit and you need to die. I mean, it was that straightforward. And I think Brown had a similar kind of attitude about it. And and it's so weird because, you know, a nation, and especially during this period, that this whole institution of slavery is built on violence and suppression of Black people have the audacity to be outraged when someone uses violence to try to put an end to it. So you can use violence to sustain white supremacy, but to use violence to fight it is somehow seen as grossly wrong. 
it's, it's right. fascinating. It's a fascinating thing from an, you know, from an intellectual perspective. It's yeah. The, and, and the cliche of, you know, history repeating itself. Well, it, it really, it seems like it is in this moment. You know, I think we're, we're seeing so much of those same dynamics play out in, in, in different ways, but in a lot of similar ways as well. Mm-hmm. Are those conversations like, I know that you've been at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation now since, since the murder of George it's Floyd. But, yeah. yeah. So, but it, it, I mean, well before that, there were these mm-hmm. issues that were coming up of black men being murdered on, on camera now. Mm-hmm. Are those, is, are those conversations that you at, in, in a museum world like that are, are able to take on or how do you address it? How, you know, how do you, how do you make people realize the similarities and, and the repetitions in history that like that cadence that sort of appears? I know that's a really complicated question, but. Right. Well, I mean, it, it, it's absolutely a conversation that museum peers are having around the country. It's, it's more in the wheelhouse of the contemporary museums, art museums are looking at it, you know, through visual media. Sure. You know, civil rights related museums have, have been, this has been their thing for a long time. Mm-hmm. Some historical societies have looked at it when it dealt with crises in their own cities and communities and are collecting the material of the protests and, and recording the voices of the people who are involved therein. Mm-hmm. But for those of us, like, you know, me just coming into the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation, it has to go deeper. It has to go to the question of what role may the institution have played intentionally or not mm-hmm. in perpetuating stereotypes, racism, white supremacy in the sure. world. And that's a, that's a much larger conversation. And, and museums are having them. And, and we are beginning that conversation at our institution because I need my team to see what they may not have been able to see. Um, The voices that they either ignored, again, um, as quote unquote, not credentialed, but nonetheless, voices of a community that was telling them, hey, we don't like this particular thing because, right? Mm -hmm. And the museum over over its history may have ignored those voices that repeatedly were telling them that, you know, so, I mean, I'll give you an example overall. So there are, you know, a lot of natural history museums and, and some of these natural history museums have these sort of culture exhibitions where they do these dioramas of indigenous people. Sure. And they present them as if they are dead cultures and dead people. Right. Or that they're some simple idyllic hunter-gatherer societies without even acknowledging the complex city-states that they operate in. Right. Without ever getting into any of that. You know, look at the nice noble savages. So we have contributed to this over the history of museums in this nation and around the world. And so... You know, so for museums right now, there is a sort of reckoning with, my God, what role could our institutions have played over time with this? And what are we still doing? And how do we fix it? Mm. And so, and, and that will vary, you know, depending on the community. The, but the museum community as a whole, you know, several of the museum associations and things have issued statements of solidarity for racial justice and equal justice and equal opportunity. But they too have to again look inward. And mm, um, as a matter of fact, you know, someone asked me, "Well, is your museum going to make a statement?" And I said, "No, we're not going to make a statement because we got work to do. Mm. We've got work to do wow. in addressing systemic things within our institution. And to me, that is the best form of solidarity is right. to actually do something. Words on a right. page mean nothing if you're not willing to look at 
whatever systems or processes that you have in place that lead to inequity. Again, right. whether intentional or not. But the truth right. is, you know, somewhere along the line, it was absolutely intentional. Sure, you know? sure. So I, I just find it, um, or, you know, or where the monies are placed, say where you, what you value as an institution. Right. So I'm, right. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I am fascinated and I move between sort of my academic professional self and watching all of this because it's absolutely fascinating to me. And, and you're right. Historians look at this and go, we told you, <laughs> we right. told you right. what was coming. And you sure. paid attention, you know, the, right. the, the, yeah. the cycle was going to begin and we, we, we had an idea of how it was going to, don't work, you know, right. and so you kind of watch with that lens and you record it. And then obviously as an African-American woman, you know, with a 17-year-old son and a 14-year-old daughter, you know, I look at it as a Black mother, right? Mm-hmm. So I have to, I have that personal space that I'm navigating and helping my children navigate their intellectual, emotional space in the midst of this extraordinary movement. Right, right. Yeah, I, I I, can't imagine. I think this is a moment that I, I know it's been said like this seems like a greater awakening to a lot of people mm-hmm. that had not been listening before. Mm-hmm. I think we can we can all hope that that continues and do do the work that that continues or to continue it. I, I am really fascinated by your career. I really thank you for, you know, everything that I read about you. I think a phrase that came up a lot is someone that's willing to have difficult conversations. Mm-hmm. And, and it just seems like the, the history world is, is better for having your perspective in it. And I just, I want to thank you so much for, for the insight that you've provided and for, for making history a more inclusive space that tells more stories. It, I think it's just fascinating. And, and I thank you so much. Well, thank you so much, Andy. I appreciate being with you guys today. And yeah, I mean, I I love what I do because at the end of the day, this is the story of us, all of us. And and we can't begin to address who we are as a people, both as a nation and our global place in it. If we're not, you know, we can't fix anything if we're not going to be honest about what the past was like. You know, there are these extraordinary moments for which we should take great pride but then there are extraordinary moments that we should have learned from so that we could, you know, address these inequities. But people, some people are so wedded to status quo. That's hard. Right. You know, that's a challenge. And so I think in the space where I work in museums, my goal is to help you begin that transition. And so far, so good. <laughs> so far, so good. But, uh, you know, now, you know, I'm in a space where we're talking about origin stories. So it is, it's going to be fun. So maybe we'll talk about that another day, another time in the future. Absolutely. Well, I know that I will definitely be looking forward to, I've I've never visited those museums. I, I can't wait to, I can't wait to see what you do at the Jamestown Yorktown Foundation. And hopefully the moment that we're experiencing changes the way that we perceive history and mm-hmm. understand history in a new way. And maybe people wake up to something they, they're they able to interpret those stories in a way that they weren't before and, and let the history influence the way they think now. And I hope that that continues. I, I do have one more question for you before we let you go. Okay. Uh, who are your favorite historians and authors? What should we be reading? Do you have some recommendations that we should oh, check out? Oh, see, why are you going to 
do that to me. Right? <laughs> Put you on the spot um, at the very end. At the on the spot at the very end. Okay, so among my absolute favorite is uh, Dr. Ed Ayers. I love him. He's a scholar of the American South. Ed is brilliant. Actually, has a show called the, the I think it's called the Future of America's Past or something like that. Okay. Ed is wonderful. Dr. Keisha Blaine is wonderful. There are some social scientists that I obviously I love. Uh, Ibrahim Kendi. Who? Um, <laughs> that's a hard question. I'm sure there's. I'm sure there's way too many to list. Right? There, yeah, there's there's just some amazing work that's coming out. Um, when it comes to food history, for example, I love Michael Twitty. I love golly, I love Kevin Levine. I love uh, oh, um, Tressa, Tressa, Tressa. Uh, why can't I think of her last name right now? Oh my God. Yeah, there's just a, a lot of really amazing people uh, out there. And the book that I recently got, which I haven't finished reading yet, called They Were Her Property. Really, really something. And that looks, you know, what I love about that book is it's putting aside the notion that white women were sort of just equally oppressed during the slavery period and didn't couldn't own property and couldn't do this and couldn't do that. When in fact, that is not true at all. They are very much uh, in this and property owners themselves. And in fact, you know, most of these, most of these women were, you know, that's, that's where they got their their wealth when they enter into these marriages. They are bringing slaves because that is transferable property, right? right? Men are bringing land. And so in the valuation on on the enslaved uh, provides them with with considerable wealth and these women are are yielding it. And so, you know, so that book is on my to-read list. So, yeah, I, I mean, I could probably think of a few more, but that's kind of where I am at the moment. That's... I was not expecting that question. Because every <laughs> time I do I'm that, sorry. it's like, I am sure there is somebody I'm going to miss, and oh, they're going to give me hell for why didn't you mention so and so? Well, so, I, you know. this gives us a great, a great jumping off point to, uh, mm-hmm. to uh, you know, I've, I'm not familiar with any of the names that you just listed. So I can't wait to, to dive into that work and, and keep learning. And yeah, Joanne I, Freeman, gotta add Joanne Freeman for early America. <laughs> so, perfect. So it'll start popping into my head. But anyway, um, if sure you want to know who I'm, I tell you what, if you want to know who to follow or some of the great historians, just look at um, who I'm following on my Twitter and you'll find them. Absolutely. And what's your, what's your handle on Twitter? Uh, at history gone wrong and awesome. the gone doesn't have an E. Wonderful, wonderful. We'll, we'll okay. definitely send we'll definitely send as many uh, folks there as we can. I truly appreciate this conversation. Thank you for making time in your day to uh, to have this conversation. Thank you for the impact that you have had and continue to have in the history world. And uh, I can't wait to see the show. I can't wait to watch. Me too. Me too. So. We're watch, watching right along with you. Thanks great. so much, Andy, and to the rest of the awesome. team. Take care. Great. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Bye. The Good Lord Bird Companion Podcast is produced by Brady Goodman and Jackie Wilburn. It's hosted by myself, Andy White, and Trevor Mowry, and is edited by Grace Fawcett. Thanks, and we'll see you next time.